Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Keith Left, the program of the Victorian Labor College. In the studio is John Lafferty. Morning, everybody. Kim Doyle. Hi, everyone. And myself, Chris Gaffney. So, uh, Kim, you're going to start talking about Greece, aren't you? Yes, that's right. Um, Greece's left-wing government is being pushed closer and closer to the brink of default, people may have noticed, by the relentless pressure from the European political and financial elite to impose the same austerity measures that the previous PASOK and New Democracy governments agreed to, and that the left-wing Syriza came to power promising to oppose. So Prime Minister Alex Tsipras and Finance Minister Yanis um, Farakis um, agreed to a wholesale retreat from Syriza's electoral program. Um, and this is the deal that was negotiated in February with the uh, Eurogroup Finance Ministers. Now, this deal continued the bailout of the Greek financial system for four months, but at the cost of continuing the policies required under the memorandums. Since then, the Greek government has made offers of further concessions, but the European rulers have not loosened the noose around the Greek economy and the Greek people. So the stance of the lenders, building on the absolutely disastrous concessions made by previous governments and the mistakes contained in the February agreement with Syriza, have led the current government into a fatal trap. So the recent decree putting all available funds held by local governments and public institutions under the control of the Bank of Greece, which, incidentally, is still headed by the former finance minister under the previous right-wing government, shows that there isn't much time before the Greek economy gets into big trouble. So on April 20th, the Greek government issued this decree forcing local authorities to place cash reserves in the Bank of Greece. Now, two days later, the Deputy Minister of Finance in charge of state revenue declared that 400 million euros uh, was missing to pay for pensions and salaries at the end of the month. Now, a few hours later, the money was found and uh, the Finance Minister... um, Deputy Finance Minister said that he was trying to constitute cash reserves. But according to sources, um, he informed Syriza members of Parliament at a meeting the same day that the state reserves wouldn't be able to make all the payments in May. So their finances are really at a nice edge, um, although they have managed to pay for this month, miraculously. And this is despite the fact that in terms of debt repayments, May is actually a relatively easy month with only 750 million euros due to the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, plus another 4 million in interest uh, repayments. So June uh, next month will be much more difficult, with 1.5 billion due to the IMF, 700 million euros to the European institutions, and 500 million in interest. So despite the fact that Greece has found the money to pay its blackmailers this month, the burden is, I would say, no doubt, um, untenable. The views of the two major European institutions that together hold about two-thirds of Greek debt, 
That's the European Central Bank and the European Stability Mechanism, the ESM, were expressed by Klaus Riegling, Managing Director of the ESM, and Bennett um, Curier, Member of the Executive Board of the ECB, which is the European Central Bank. And they said in late April, um, both of them actually expressed a very tough line on Greece, rejecting two key demands of the Greek government in the first phase of the negotiations. Now, the first of these demands was they refused uh, to the disimbursement of the $1.9 billion to which Greece is entitled before the what they call the completion of their review, which means compliance with the type of reforms, i.e. austerity, um, that the Greek government opposes. So that's things like slashing wages and welfare. They also refused the gradual approach to austerity, which was proposed by Greek finance minister um, Farrakis, to allow Greece to get liquidated before June and to facilitate an agreement. Instead, they've presented a comprehensive list of reforms, which include further deregulation of the labour market and cuts to pensions, two red lines that the Greeks claim that they would not cross. So CISPRA's so-called honest compromise is looking more and more fantastical. <clears throat> uh, Riegling, who again was from the European um, Stability uh, mechanism I mentioned earlier even said that while we work very very hard to avoid what um, all the cool economists are calling a Grexit uh, he also added that of course it would be more manageable than five or six years ago because we have new institutions the EFSF which I'm not actually sure what that stands for um, the ESM and other countries in the euro area have been making tremendous adjust, um, tremendous um, adjustment progress, such as Ireland, Portugal and Spain, which basically means that they've done a good job um, at screwing over their working class. So Riggling also explicitly opposed the current plans of the Greek government to reduce some taxes and increase the minimum wage and pensions, saying that this amounts to moving backwards and would put negotiations in danger. And we have to be very clear that what they're actually talking about is this is going to cost the lives of Greek people, basically. So this is explicitly political and not primary, primarily economic, I would argue, because the European powers know that Greece will never pay back the debt. That is not what this is about. It's about punishing the Greek people for daring to elect a government that the European elites opposed and crushing the idea that you can resist austerity at all. Well, through the ballot box. Yeah. Well, that's exactly the point. I mean, it's mm. about time. I mean, the Syriza, I strikes me, is a, is, is a left libertarian party rather than a party of the working class, which would be embarking upon ways of defying this yeah. and rallying the working class of Europe. I think mm. they have some roots in the working class because they were oh, active um, in yeah. the working class. I meant their actual politics rather yeah, than exactly. their basis of support. No, mm. Varoufakis is that typical, I think he, mm. he has that typical attitude of we have to save capitalism from itself, typical social democratic. Well, that's right, that's right, that's yeah. right. It's like self-flagellation, really. Yeah, bloody Mensheviks. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> <laughs> a new poll has shown that a majority of German executives now believe the Eurozone would be better off without Greece. So this is where this hard line against Greece is coming from primarily. Um, so according to German's premier business newspaper, the Handelblatt, which that's what I'm insisting on pronouncing it as, 
Uh, 44% of 673 executive-level German managers surveyed think that Greece should leave the Eurozone of its own accord. A further further 13% think Greece could be actively ejected from the Union. 79% believe if Greece left the Euro, it wouldn't have any contagion effects with other countries, and less than one-fifth are concerned about the financial knock-on. So people know that during the Euro crisis from about 2010 to 2012, businesses and politicians in Europe were concerned about this domino effect if Greece exited the Euro. They were afraid that no one would be safe and that other peripheral economies would be affected. The logic was that Greece might... um, was that Greece might trigger collapse in Portugal and Spain, etc. So the reason that they bailed out the Greek banks was not to help the Greek people, and it was not the Greek people that caused this crisis, and it wasn't even to help the Greek banks, really. It was actually to bail out the banks of Germany and France because they were afraid that their toxic debt would come back to them. This time round, they're not so worried. This is because they have actually profited from the crisis and the recession, and have stolen more and more money from the working class of Europe, and they have consciously planned for the possibility of a Greek exit from the euro. And the Greek government's isolation has only been compounded by recent statements by President Obama and US uh, Treasury Secretary Jack Lew urging the Greek government to move quickly down the path of reforms and comply with the demands of its creditors. So although the US might have a different policy from the European institutions in terms of economics in Greece. They completely agree with the political project of austerity and they understand that it is important not just for the European population but their own population that it is seen to be impossible to defy austerity. So they're completely united on this agenda, um, this anti-democratic agenda. So at this stage the options remaining for the Syriza government seem to be restricted to about three Um, The good scenario, which um, is still favoured by the Greek government, is that the Europeans will make some concessions and a compromise will be reached. This possibility has already been explicitly ruled out by the European Commission President um, Jean-Claude Jacques, German Finance Minister Wolfgang Schobels and many others. So the second option, which I think is the preferred one for the European elites, is that the Greek government simply gives up and... This, of course, I think is exactly what they want. And I don't think it's... um, It it is a possibility. And I think the third option is the Greek government um, ends up defaulting on the debt. And I don't see how this can't come to a head in the next couple of months or sometime this year. I think there has to be some sort of crunch, the way that both of... Well, the way that the Europeans are denying any sort of reforms. Well, Um, in a way, that's what I think we would want, is the last option, because... Capitalism breaks at its weakest link, and its weakest link in Europe is Greece. And if the Greece working class take up the struggle decrying all those options and say, well, first of all, we'll nationalise the banks, mm-hmm. seize their assets, and drop out of the, and, 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 and agitate amongst the working class of Europe to do the same, and then we might at last have the beginnings of a revolt against the dictatorship of capital. Yes. I think it's like examples. That <coughs> the, the, these guys, the big bankers in power, they want to set an example saying we're going to smash, we're going to beat exactly. these folk in Greece and, and then the rest of you will wake we'll up to yourself. On our side, it's more, no, we want to set an example that we can have influence, we can get power. Well, that's mm. the thing is that if, if the Greek 
government is at all going to implement the program, the Thessal- Thessaloni um, program that they were actually elected on, they're going to have to confront European capitalism. And that means exactly what you were saying, Chris, is preparing the working class to actually do things like take over the banks and the kind of wrath that they will face from the Europeans when they do this and to inspire the people of Europe to, or working class of Europe to... Bring it on. Well, banks have been nationalised before. It's just we've spent the past few decades uh, privatising them all Mm. and other uh, industries too. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I was just going to speak about uh, Russell Brand and his about face. Comedian Russell Brand may be turning into a British version of Peter Garrett. At one time, Garrett sang against Aboriginal dispossession and against the maintenance of US military bases in Australia. He transformed into a Labour Party politician and even became a federal minister. Russell Brand has deservedly become famous as a very talented comedian and actor. He has also been a social activist, his work with drug addiction being especially insightful. More recently, he's become a political activist. He has taken a stance that no matter who young, poor or working-class Britons vote for, they'll end up with a politician who just won't act in their interests. He has claimed never to have voted and has advocated that others also don't vote. In Britain, voting isn't compulsory, as it is said to be in Australia. However, for taking this anti-voting stance, Russell was widely castigated by many in the media and political establishment. His book, Revolution, further angered many in the elite, while being widely cheered by many on the left. In fact, amongst young people and leftists, the past couple of years has seen Russell's star shine very brightly indeed, and a lot of the praise he has received would appear justified. This week, though, on the eve of the British general election, he seems to have had a change of heart. Last Sunday, Russell broadcast an interview with British Labour Party leader Ed Miliband in Russell's flat. A section of the interview was held back, but it was entitled Emergency, Vote to Start Revolution. In this section, Russell says to Ed, quote, I... Try to go say some straight face, hang on. Quote, Russell to Ed. I think it's cool what you say, that the election's the beginning, not the end. It's about a dialogue with the British people where they're heard over the interests of the powerful. Then we have something worth voting for. What I heard Ed Miliband say is that if we speak, he'll listen. <laughs> All politicians say, if you speak, I'll listen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> especially party leaders on the eve of an election. Maybe Russell's been tuned out of party politics for a long time, and that is perfectly understandable. Can't blame him for that. It's still a naive statement to make. Russell can at times be naive, just to go back a couple of years. Back in 2012, he was selected by the Dalai Lama to host the Buddhist leaders' youth event in Manchester. Russell was asked why he agreed to this, and he said, and this is another quote, I said yes because the Dalai Lama is the living incarnation of Buddha. He's an amazing diplomat, an incredible activist, a wonderful human being, and an inspiration to us all. The Lama could equally be viewed as a reactionary theocrat and a con man. Russell's claim has also claimed to be a committed Hindu. Now, I'm not often a go at Russell Brand personally, I like Russell Brand. 
He has a right to his spiritual views, but the world of politics which the Lama, the Lama, the Dalai Lama inhabits also has a very earthly significance. The Tibetans' political posturing has serious ramifications for big power politics and for millions of people around the world. Surely Russell must be aware of that. Yet with the Lama, and now with Ed Miliband, he seems to just take them at their word. So this week, Russell has advocated a vote for Labour in the British election. The British election has been held overnight, now time. This is a remarkable about face. Prime Minister David Cameron sneered at a man he called a joke of a comedian with a beard. It should be remembered, however, that Russell does have a huge following, especially amongst youth, and they may be more inclined to think of Cameron as the real joke. With Russell's about face, though, a lot of that following must now be questioning his credibility. Many are wondering why he isn't advocating a vote for a party to the left of Labour. Can it really be that he believes a vote for Labour is the first step towards revolution? Much of the history of the last century would suggest that Labour governments actually are perfectly suited to preventing the working class from taking power. His understanding of party politics does often appear to be very basic. For instance, in 2014, he advocated a yes vote in the Scottish independence referendum, and that's fair enough. Yet despite that, and despite all polls saying that Ed Miliband and Labour will not govern, because I can't govern without the Scottish nationalists, and despite the fact that Miliband has ruled this out, I think something will regret, Russell Brand says he now supports Labour. It just doesn't add up. He can't have it both ways. He can't have it both ways. Either for the Scottish independence or for what the Labour Party wants. He can't have both. Now, a lot of his followers are quite young. At the last general elect, the last general election in Britain was five years ago. So many of them, I would believe, if they followed Russell's original advice, wouldn't be registered to vote. If they wanted to now join him in switching to Labour, he only changed his mind this week, so it's too late for them mm. to register. I just don't think he's thought this through. Also, while he, he speaks on behalf of the poor and dispossessed, and while he calls for a revolution, all sounds good. Is it the kind of revolution which socialists call for? It would appear it isn't. As with Tony Blair, as with Barack Obama, as with what Kim was speaking about, Tsaritsa in Greece, we can all hope that Ed Miliband does listen and does affect positive change for the British working class. But let's be honest, this will almost certainly be another false dawn. I think this shows beyond any doubt that being radical isn't enough. You need theory. Mm-hmm. And you need specifically Marxist theory. Otherwise you inevitably fall into the trap that Russell Brand has fallen yeah, into. Yeah, it's just too pie he's in doing the sky. A, he's doing it on personalities mm. and what people feel and mm. think and set instead of looking at class realities from which all politics really Well, proceed. I it's... think Ed might have you know, <laughs> sprinkled something into Russell's tea, a little bit icky, maybe, and I think, you know, he's got Russell back in the drugs. And... Well, <laughs> yeah. I oh, I love you. I think it's a problem, too, that he is not explicitly building an organisation because at least then you can have discussions. That's about, right. It's a one man show. Even if you're talking yes, to other right. left wing people, more experienced left wing people, at least mm. you can have discussions about tactics and, you know, the history of the Labour yes. Party and whether it is capable of doing these things. But I watched that interview with Ed Miliband, mm, you and that. yeah, one of the main mm. things that I also looked at, if you look at the comments on Facebook, he is getting a whole lot of crap from his supporters. Like most Miliband. of the comments. No, 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 um, oh, Russell, Russell Brand. Okay. Most of the comments that I saw were negative. There were hundreds of them, though, so I couldn't do proper mm, survey yeah. on them. But what he was saying, what Ed Miliband kept saying was 
oh, you know, we want pressure from the people from the grassroots. Mm, That's sure fantastic. You know, and he and Russell Brand was was asking him about how are you going to crack down on these, you know, multinational tax avoiders? And of course, it's that typical labor reformist thing. Oh yeah, we can do it within the system. We can do it. We'll just work internationally. We're all it for just that. we're not about to, and we haven't. Yeah. Mm. Can I move quickly on to? Uh, Something that makes me ashamed every 26th of January, and that's Australia's supposed National Day. And until we give elementary human justice to the Aborigines, it's a shameful, it's a shameful, shameful day. And Australia again has declared war on its Indigenous people, uh, reminiscent of the sort of brutality that was part of apartheid South Africa. Aboriginal people are to be driven from homelands where their people have lived for thousands of years. In Western Australia, where mining companies make billions of dollars profits exploiting Aboriginal land, the state government says it can no longer afford to support the homelands. Vulnerable populations already denied most of the basic services most Australians taken for granted are on notice of dispossession without consultation and eviction at gunpoint. The 1997 report, Bringing Them Home, which revealed that thousands of Indigenous children had been stolen from their communities by white institutions and systematically abused, a campaign of denial was launched by a far-right clique around the Prime Minister John Howard. The government of the current Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, a Conservative zealot, has revived this assault on people who represent Australia's singular uniqueness. Soon after coming to office, Abbott's government cut $534 million in Indigenous social programs, including $160 million from the Indigenous health budget. And we're talking about a people whose health is amongst the worst in the world. And $13.4 million was taken from Indigenous legal aid. And Mr Abbott's remark about that they weren't going to support a lifestyle choice, but they have no problem supporting the lifestyle choice of the rich. They have their own health services, they have their own private schools, all of which we support to the absolute limit, but we can't support the original inhabitants of this land. In the 2004 Overcoming Indigenous Disadvantage report, the devastation is clear. The number of people, of Aboriginal people hospitalised for self-harm has leapt, as have suicides amongst those as young as 11. Having insulted Indigenous Australians by declaring that there was nothing but bush before the white man, he's a man in complete grasp of history, Abbott announced that his government would no longer honour the long-standing commitment to Aboriginal homelands. It's not the job of taxpayers, he sneered, to subsidise lifestyle choices. The weapons used by Abbott and his redneck mates is dispossession by abuse and propaganda, coercion and blackmail, such as his demand for 99-year-old, 99-year leaseholds of Indigenous land in the Northern Territory in a return for basic services that we get without having to sacrifice a thing. Both Conservative and Labour governments have already withdrawn the National Job Programme, CDEP, from the homelands, any opportunities for employment, and prohibited investment in infrastructure, housing, generators, sanitation, The savings they make is absolutely peanuts. The reason is an extreme document that evokes the punitive campaigns of the earliest 20th century, where people declared that the first Australians must assimilate to extinction. 
Influenced by the same eugenics movement that inspired the Nazis, Queensland's Protection Acts were a model for the South African apartheid regime. The last frontal attack on the Aborigines was in 2007, when Prime Minister John Howard sent the army into Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory to rescue children. Who said his Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Max Malbra, were being abused by paedophile gangs in unthinkable numbers? And when the reports came out, in the entire report there wasn't one mention, not one mention, of child abuse. Known as the intervention, the media played a vital role. In 2006, the ABC's program Late Line broadcast a sensational interview with a man whose face was concealed. He was described as a youth worker who lived in the Aboriginal community, who made a series of lurid allegations. He was subsequently exposed as a senior governor official who reported directly to the minister, and his claims were discredited by the Australian Crime Commission, the Northern Territory Police, and a damning report by child medical specialists. This was the basis for the Commonwealth intervention. It allowed the federal government to destroy many of the vestiges of self-determination in the Northern Territory, where Aboriginal people had won federally legislated land rights. And in achieving that degree of self-determination, amazingly, there was 40% lower mortality rate. In other words, where you give Aboriginals the right to determine their own future, their health improves. Uh, uh, it is um. this traditional life of Aborigines that is anathema to a white parasitic industry of civil servants, contractors, lawyers and consultants. It's as if the enduring existence of a people who've survived and resisted more than two centuries of massacre and theft remains a spectre on white Australia a reminder to the whites of whose land this really is. The current political attack was launched in the richest state, Western Australia. Last October, Colin Barnett, the Premier, announced that his government could not afford the $90 million budget for basic municipal services to 282 homelands, water, power, sanitation, schools, road maintenance, rubbish and collection. <clears throat> Where were the dispossessed supposedly going when they kicked off these places? Indigenous homelessness, aside from natural disaster and civil strife, is the, one of the highest anywhere in the world. In a state renowned for its conspicuous wealth, golf courses and prisons overflowing with impoverished black people. Western Australia jails Aboriginal males at more than eight times the rate of apartheid South Africa. In March of this year, Barnett, the Premier, changed his story. He said, oh, there's emerging evidence, he said, of appalling mistreatment of little kids in the homelands. What evidence? Barnett claimed that gonorrhea had been found in children younger than 14. Then he conceded he didn't know if these were actually in the homelands at all. His police commissioner chimed in that sexual abuse was rife. He quoted a 15-year-old report by the Australian Institute of Family Studies. What he failed to say was that the report highlighted poverty as the overwhelming cause of neglect and that sexual abuse counted for less than 10%. In Barnett's vast, rich, rich Western Australia, barely a fraction of mining oil and gas revenue has benefited the communities from which this government has a duty of care. In the town of Roanburn, in the midst of the booming mineral-rich Pilbara, 
80% of the Indigenous children suffer from an ear infection called otitis media that causes deafness. It doesn't affect the whites. In 2011, the Barnett government displayed a brutality in the community Omar Bulgara, the other, uh, and this is what the other homelands can expect. First of all, the government closed the services. Then it closed the shop so people couldn't buy food and essentials. It then closed the clinic so the elderly and the sick had to move. And then it closed the schools so families with children had to leave or face having their children taken away from them. Then eventually they turned the electricity and the water off. Finally, the 10 residents who resolutely stayed to the end were forcibly evicted and their possessions were buried in a big hole. On April the 12th, the federal government offered $15 million over five years. That such a miserly sum is considered enough to fund proper services in the great expanse of the state's homelands is a measure of the value placed on Indigenous lives by white politicians who un- unhesitatingly spend $28 billion on armaments in the military. Hayden Bromley of the Aboriginal Trust said this, The $15 million doesn't include most of the homelands and it will only cover bare essentials, power, water, community development, infrastructure, we'll forget them. The current distraction from these dirty secrets is the approaching uh, was the uh, celebrations of uh, Gallipoli. The Australian War Memorial, by the by, refuses to recognise the resistance to British invasion by the Aboriginal people. And in a, in a country littered with war memorials, there's not one for the thousands of native Australians who fought and fell defending their homeland. In Sydney, the Art Deck Gallery of New South Wales currently has an exhibition called The Photograph in Australia, in which the timeline of this country begins with Captain Cook. Oh, God. The same silence covers another enduring epic resistance, extraordinary demonstration of Indigenous women protesting at the removal of their children and grandchildren by the state, some at gunpoint, are ignored by politicians and ignored by journalists. More Indigenous children are being wrenched from their homes in community days than during the worst years of the stolen generation. A record 15,000 Indigenous children are presently detained in care. Many are given to white families and will never return to their community. Of course, Australian politicians are nervous of the UN because the UN is onto this. Abbott's response has been abuse. When the UN Special Rapporteur on Indigenous People described the racism of intervention, Abbott told him to get a life and not listen to old, the old victim brigade. Who was that? Who? Who, the, who, was, who was the UN guy? Uh, Professor James Anaya, A-N-A-N-A. And Abbott said, get a life? Yep. The, plan close, the planned closure of Indigenous homeland breaches Article 5 of the International Convention for the Elimination of Race Discrimination of the United Nations. Australia is supposedly committed to provide effective mechanisms for the prevention of and redress any action that has the aim of dispossessing Indigenous people of their lands, territories and resources. An international momentum is building, not in Australia, unfortunately. Pope Francis, completely useless in most regards, actually urged the world... You can't to, play basketball. Well, can't he? Well, that's an achievement. 
In 2013, Pope Francis urged the world to act against racism and on behalf of indigenous people who are increasingly isolated and abandoned. That's his quote. It was South Africa's defiance of such a principle of human rights that ignited the international uh, opposition to it. And I think this is what's going to happen in Australia. So that's what we want to say about that. But um, it's it's a matter of complete disgust by me anyway, and I'm sure mm. a lot of you out there and too. And look out for the next rally, which I'm sure will be happening. That's I look out for, exactly. And, and what a success the last one was too. And it was interesting that the Sun had a headline said it said, City Hijacked. Forget about the disposition of what's happening to the Aborigines. Forget the stealing of their children, the effective genocide that we're perpetrating. The city was gridlocked. People had to wait, what, 10 minutes before they got home. It was an outrage. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.